Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open together to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, the very first chapter, very first verse. This morning we begin our annual summer study in an Old Testament book. You might remember that last year the book was the book of Daniel. We had a great time, at least I did, looking at God's plan of redemption through the lens of prophecy. And uh, incidentally, we know that the Lord is working through all of the empires and kingdoms and nations of the world. And he's ultimately, according to the book of Daniel, going to install the eternal king of glory, his his own son over all of creation. This fall, we've scheduled a week in November for a conference on biblical prophecy. So I hope you'll make plans to attend that. But for today, we're in the book of Proverbs. You likely know that the Bible consists of 66 separate books, which were written by a wide variety of authors over the course of many, many years. And though each of the books is unique in its composition, They were all inspired by God, and they have His authority attached to them. Thematically, though, it's sometimes helpful to group the 66 books of the Bible into categories or groupings that we call genre. I just mentioned one of the genres of the Bible earlier, that's prophecy. We also have historical narrative, we have poetry, we have the law. This summer, many of you are going to be studying a portion of the Scripture known as wisdom literature. The books of Job and Ecclesiastes are the curriculum through the summer for many of our Sunday school classes. There's a third book of wisdom in the Bible, and it's our text for this summer. That is the book of Proverbs. Now, wisdom literature primarily conveys truth concerning virtuous Christian behavior. By the way, wisdom literature, particularly Proverbs, are not the exclusive domain of our Bible. Neither are they exclusive domain of any one culture or religion. Most cultures through the years have written down and recorded their wisest sayings so that they may be passed down to future generations. Now, strictly speaking, a proverb is a wise saying. Uh, They are usually short in length so that they can be remembered even by small children. Uh, In the lives of God's people, proverbs are meant to promote what we call practical righteousness. That is, we are positionally righteous the moment of salvation, aren't we? God declares us righteous because we are in Christ. But we still sin, don't we? And so for the rest of our lives, we're in the process of separating from sin and becoming more like Jesus in word and thought and action. And that's what we mean by practical righteousness, righteousness in practice. There are about 800 Proverbs in this book. It's divided in our English Bibles into 31 chapters. I don't think we'll cover all 800 Proverbs this summer, but we'll do our best. Uh, so that's a joke, by the way, we're not going to cover 800 books. Um, because they're divided into 31 chapters, it makes it very practical to read and to study. I try in my own personal life to read at least one chapter of Proverbs every day. Sometimes when my children get up in time over the breakfast table, we'll read a proverb together at the dinner table because I want to instill in them the wisdom that's found in these Proverbs and I need it in my own life. The Proverbs are incredibly practical, very relevant even today, hundreds of years after they were written. Because hundreds of years after they were originally written, human nature has not changed, has it? Uh, 
Men and women are basically the same, and we know God's nature has never and will never change. The Proverbs vary in their application to the most general of wisdom about life, to very specific applications of relationships, of sexuality, of marriage and family, and, and even work. Now, it's very important to understand that a proverb is not a promise. Write that down if you've got a pen. A proverb is not a promise. I think many people, even Christians, have misunderstood what a proverb is. What I mean by a proverb is not a promise is we can't carve a proverb out of the Bible, paste it to our mirror, and claim it every day as a promise from God to us. Uh, a proverb is just that. They are guides to human behavior, which are based on general truth. It's not a universal ironclad promise to everybody. Um, a classic example is this. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Now, we all know of very godly men and women who have done a great job of rearing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when that child is an adult, they walk away from the faith and sometimes never to return. And so that's what I mean. It's a proverb. It's not an ironclad promise. What that means, that particular proverb in application, is that it's a general observation that if you are consistent and intentional about teaching your children about God, those parents can expect better outcomes than those who leave their children to their own devices. But there are exceptions. So let's, with that understanding, begin at the beginning. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of the understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now the first thing we see right away in verse 1 is the person. That is the person who wrote most of these proverbs and it is said to be Solomon. The proverbs of Solomon. In fact, that is the overall title of all 31 chapters put together, the Proverbs of, of Solomon. In reality, the book of Proverbs is a collection of collections. It's uh, four or five different collection of Proverbs that have been put together, uh, most of which were authored directly by Solomon. First Kings tells us that Solomon, during his reign, authored over 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 songs. He was the Bill Gaither of his day, I suppose. And so all of them are not included in the book. Uh, but just to remind us all that Solomon was the son of King David and a woman named Bathsheba. You remember that that relationship began with an adulterous affair. And the child that was born of that affair died in early infancy. But David married Bathsheba and she bore him several other children of which Solomon was one. Solomon succeeded his father as king of Israel. He was the third king of Israel. Saul was the first, David the second, Solomon the third. And he ruled a large and unified kingdom from 970 to 931 BC. And one of his greatest accomplishments, of course, was the construction of the first temple. David had in his heart to build a temple to the Lord, but God forbade it because David was a bloody man, the scripture says. His past indiscretions, uh, God said, did not allow him 
to build him such a wonderful work. But God allowed Solomon that privilege. In addition to architectural success, God also granted Solomon incredible wisdom and incredible wealth. In fact, Solomon's reputation went all over the known world and people would come from all over to hear his wisdom proclaim and to admire his prosperity. But Solomon, like his dad David, had a weakness for women. It proved to be his undoing. Specifically, he violated God's commandment and he married pagan wives, probably to form alliances with these idolatrous kingdoms. But with all his collective wisdom, he seems to have been a total failure as a husband and a father. His son Rehoboam ascended the throne after Solomon's death and promptly the kingdom was divided in two, never to be reunited in his lifetime because of the lack of wisdom that he showed. So you might be wondering, if Solomon failed at such important tasks as being a godly example to the people and even as a husband and father, why in the world did God choose him to be the one to write this important book of the Bible? Come close and I want to tell you something. God doesn't tell me why he does what he does. And he probably hasn't told you. You're going to see that. You might have this morning if you started the book of Job in your Sunday school class. Job asked a question for over 40 chapters. Why? 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 And God never chose to answer. He usually doesn't. The Lord has not chosen to realize why he does many of the things he does. The Baptist faith and message is our doctrinal statement, and it says it like this. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. Now, if God chose men, and he did, to write the books of the Bible, he only had one choice, and that was to use sinners, <laughs> because we all are. So if, if God decided to reveal himself through the pens of human beings, Solomon was simply one of those sinners he chose, just like Moses just like Isaiah, just like Peter and Paul and John and every other person who wrote a book of the Bible. There's an important truth to remember about King Solomon. As great as he was and as wise as he was, he is not the hero of the Bible. I start this way every summer, don't I? Whether we're talking about Jonah or David or Elijah I want us to all remember that those men are not the heroes of the Bible, even though their names are attached to great books of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Let's keep that in mind. The New Testament in Luke chapter 11 reminds us. Remember I said that people would come from all over to see Solomon's wealth and admire his kingdom? Well, one of those persons was a woman known as the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba. And she came and visited Solomon, listened to his wise teaching, and looked at his palaces and his wealth. And this is what she said in response, quote, the half has not been told, end quote. Now, sometimes when we hear about someone's talents or their house or even some attraction in the country that everyone's going to see, sometimes we build it up in our mind, we get there, we're just a little bit disappointed, if we'll tell the truth. It's not as great as we thought. When this woman saw Solomon in his temple, she said, you are underrated, <laughs> It's greater than I could have imagined. Now, keep that in mind. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 11. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
as wise and as wealthy as Solomon was, he wasn't God. And Jesus was saying he is. And so Solomon was used by God under the authority of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. Well, that's the person who wrote the Proverbs. Now, secondly, let's look at the stated purposes of the book. There are several. Verse 2, the purposes are to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and integrity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Those are the stated purposes of the book of Proverbs. The general purpose, the overarching purpose, is to promote practical righteousness, to help us live, behave, and speak in a way that is pleasing to God. But there are specific purposes that clarify that overarching purpose. Number one, verse two says, one of the purposes of Proverbs is to educate us, to give us wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Maybe you've been taught that Christians, and Baptists in particular, are anti-intellectual. That should never be the case. I remember about 15 years ago, uh, there was a church that was organizing in our area, and there were many organizing at that time, and most of them would send out flyers to every address within five miles or so of their location. They got a flyer in the mail from a particular church that was about to open, and it said on the very front, come to our church where you can check your brain at the door. As if that were a good thing. A lot of people have the idea that Christianity is to be felt, but not to be thought. But the scripture says the opposite of that, that we're to be renewing our mind every day upon the word of God. God gives you the ability to think as a stewardship as he does every other blessing. And so Solomon understood that, and he said these proverbs are to promote education. Number one, to give wisdom. Wisdom, of course, I've often said here, is the application of knowledge. But it also includes the accrual of that knowledge. It's simply to educate. Secondly, to give instruction, which is a word which means discipline or training, which tells us that the target of many of these proverbs is the young, the very young. In fact, the first nine chapters is explicitly towards children. Young men, specifically, as they're growing up, how to develop a worldview that would be pleasing to God. And then the third thing is it develops understanding, which is the same word as discernment. It means the difference not only between right and wrong, but better and best. So it's to educate. Secondly, the purpose of the Proverbs is to promote good and godly relationships with other people. Uh, again, look at verse 3. He says, to receive instruction in wise behavior, comma, righteousness, justice, and equity. That means how we relate to other people. Now, righteousness, justice, and equity. Have you heard those words used in our culture? Almost every day. Now, here, here's the problem with the social justice movement, is that many of those same people that are crying for righteousness, justice, and equity which by the way, God loves. <laughs> he is the author of those things. He is the standard of those things. And that's the problem with the social justice movement is many of the same people who cry out for righteousness, justice, and equity deny that there is such a thing as an absolute standard of truth. And so righteousness, justice, and equity is whatever I say it is at that moment in time. And you might have noticed it's a moving target. And yet God's word is unchangeable. 
It is immutable. It is consistent throughout the generations. And so Solomon is saying, if you want to know what true justice, true equity, and true righteousness is, you must study the will of God. And then there's a third stated purpose of the Proverbs, and that is to give us the ability to navigate through the dangerous waters of life. Would you agree with me that the waters of our lives are dangerous? Filled with dangers, toils, and snares, aren't they? Well, look at verse 4 and 5. He says, to give prudence to the naive. Who's more naive than a child? To the youth, knowledge and discretion, the ability to make good decisions. A wise person will hear and increase in learning, and a person of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now, underline those two words, wise counsel. In the Hebrew, they simply mean he will acquire the ability to steer. Now, I grew up in rural Mississippi, and uh, I tell you a little secret. I learned to drive when I was five years old. Uh, we lived on gravel roads. There were no other cars around. I remember very clearly sitting in my father's lap. I wouldn't try that today, um, <laughs> literally. So uh, I would sit in my father's lap on the way to kindergarten, and he would let me steer the car. And there were no obstacles in the way. I learned to drive at a very early age. Driving heavy equipment when I was 12 or 13 years old, working on the farm, that's what you did. Now, my daughter is 13 years old, not to embarrass her, but um, she's already saving for her first car. And she babysits, and she says, you know, I, I said, baby, if you'll come up with half of the cost of a used car, your mom and I will come up with the other half, and she's far ahead of us in that savings right now. <laughs> but uh, she'll have her driver's license in just a few years. Um, but I, I thought... How different it is living in Dallas, Texas to learn to drive than where I grew up. There are many more obstacles to avoid. That's the way it is for your young person today in life. This world is full of obstacles and dangers. And if you want them to navigate through their lives and make good God-honoring decisions, you're going to have to be intentional. And one of the ways you have to do that is to fill them with the Word of God and namely wisdom literature, and very specifically, the book of Proverbs. Now you say, well, I'm, I'm past that. My kids are grown out of the house. I'm certainly too old of a dog to learn a new trick. No, you're not. It's not just for young people. It's for all people who are willing to learn. The Proverbs will help you to make better decisions. I had a friend, speaking of learning to drive, who started a business teaching adults who were immigrating to this country as adults to drive, and he made a very good living. It's not too late for you to learn to make good decisions. The idea behind the Proverbs is to study them and read them and meditate on them over and over until they form habits of thought and practice. That's what it means when he says to understand a proverb. You don't understand anything until you do it. It's not enough to pass a test on the content. It has to become part of your everyday life. That is the purpose of the Proverbs, it's practical application. Now, thirdly, verse 7 is the preface to the rest of the book. The preface. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, the genre is wisdom literature, but within that genre, we also have another literary device that's used often here. It's called parallelism where you put two things side by side and either compare or contrast the two. In this case, 
It's two things that are opposite. One, there's the person who fears the Lord, who's called wise. And then the person who does not fear the Lord, he's called what? A fool. Now, we need to be very careful as Christians calling people fools. Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. But God is allowed to call us a fool if he wants to because he has perfect knowledge. And as we start the journey of the Proverbs, here I think is the most important thing to remember. This is what Solomon is laying out at the very beginning as the theme of the entire book. The overarching and undergirding theme is the fear of the Lord. Now I'll go beyond that and I believe that the fear of the Lord is one of the overarching and undergirding themes of all the Bible. And certainly of all Christianity. It is often repeated as a command to God's people. I'll just give you one example. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is turning over reins of leadership to Joshua. The people are about to cross over into the promised land. He's giving them instructions and he says, These are the commands, decrees, and the laws of the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord. There's that word again. As long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life, Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2. And so the big question is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, that's a nuanced and a difficult question to answer. It's a hard thing to define, but taking the whole of Scripture, it means at least this. It means that God's people are to know his character. What I mean by that, what he's like, he's holy, what his standard is, perfection. He's holy, he hates and judges sins, and he demands reverence, awe, and respect. And so maybe you're wondering, how do you harmonize a God who calls us to fear him with the same God who in the New Testament extends to us an invitation to come with boldness into his presence? Well, I think we can harmonize that. Dr. Roy Fish was a hero to an entire generation of preacher boys and evangelists. For four decades, he taught the subject of evangelism down at Southwestern Seminary. And in his late life, as I was a young pastor here, I had the opportunity to have him speak from this pulpit numerous times. My wife and I enjoyed his company in our home for meals. But before that, as a student, I had the opportunity to sit in one of his classes under his teaching. And I don't ever recall a lecture in which Dr. Fish failed to quote his hero. Dr. Fish was a lot of our heroes, but he had a hero who had long been dead. His name was G. Campbell Morgan. And G. Campbell Morgan was a pastor in England and later came to the United States and preached uh, along with uh, Dwight L. Moody. Ended up going back and pastoring the same church again in, in his later life. And he mentored uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who many of you read his sermons as well. But Dr. Fish was constantly quoting G. Campbell Morgan. And I remember one of those quotes about G. Campbell Morgan was about the fear of God. G. Campbell Morgan said there are two kinds of fear. Number one, there's a fear that God will hurt me. That's what many people hear when they hear the Bible saying, fear the Lord. I have to quake in his presence or else he's going to judge me or pour his wrath out on me. That's an inappropriate kind of fear for a Christian, isn't it? Because Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why it says come with boldness, because we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. It's inappropriate 
for God's people to have a fear that he's going to hurt us. That's why Paul told Timothy that God's not given us a spirit of timidity or fear. But there's a second kind of fear that I think is appropriate for Christians. And Morgan says it this way. The first kind of fear is a fear that God will hurt me. The second kind of fear is a fear that I will hurt God through my sin. That's an appropriate fear for Christians to have. That's the kind of fear I mentioned a few weeks ago. I said to husbands and wives, you need to have a healthy fear of destroying your marriage with adultery. And if you have a healthy kind of fear, you're not going to let other people into your life in that kind of intimacy that belongs only to your spouse. That's a healthy fear. It's not a fear that my spouse will hurt me. It's a fear that I will hurt my spouse. Because we recognize that even though we're saved, we're still capable of great sin. That, I think, is what Solomon is speaking of here. That's why he gives us the Proverbs, so that we may develop habits of speech, thought, and behavior that don't hurt God's reputation, that we will live in consistency with who we claim we are, children of the Most High God. But remember I said this is a parallel. The first sentence of verse 7 is about the wise. They fear the Lord. But the other half of that is that the foolish don't. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I don't think that's just talking about atheist, classically. It certainly includes that, but I think it's more than that. A foolish person is one who gives no thought to God's plan or perspective. They're just going through life, making decisions based on whims or the prevailing winds of the culture. This fall, we plan to start a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. So I've already been studying Romans chapter 1, one of the great chapters of the Bible. And in Romans chapter 1, we see the cyclical nature of civilizations. We see how civilizations rise and fall. Paul explains it this way in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now those few verses answer a lot of questions that social scientists are always asking. How did we get here? Why is the world in such a mess? What is the purpose of life? Paul says what happened is that God revealed himself to every human being since birth. Children are born with a conscience and an innate understanding of right and wrong. They don't have to have the Ten Commandments. They can look at the birds in the sky and the stars and look down at the Grand Canyon and know they didn't create it. Someone greater and much more creative and powerful than they. That's why he says we are all without excuse. And so you likely were taught in school, if you were educated in the last 20 years, that humanity began from a single cell organism, right? And and somehow that organism that was single cell grew other cells. Eventually those cells turned into a tail and gills and fins and flippers. And one day our ancestor climbed out of the primordial ooze onto land and over time lost his tail and fins and flippers and grew hair and a nose. 
given enough time, he began to stand upright. He learned to speak to other people like him and eventually have what we have today known as human beings. Now, that's what we're taught about biology. But evolutionary theory has extended over into the social sciences now where we're taught that man, like our ancestors biologically, socially, and culturally, is evolving upward and better all the time. That he started out uh, worshiping these pictures and drawings and carvings, and then over time he created uh, a pantheon of gods such as the Greeks and Romans have, and today we're down uh, to one supreme being, that we've been on this upward cycle, and society's becoming more sophisticated and better all the time. That's an interesting theory, um, except none of it's true. According to the Word of God, the high point of humanity was in the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve without sin and enjoyed perfect fellowship with them. They didn't have to carve anything. He would come in some personal manifestation and fellowship with them in the cool of the morning. But when sin entered the world, that's when the wheels fell off, right? God cast them out of the garden. He no longer worshiped like that anymore. Then they had to sacrifice. And, and it's not that man has been evolving upward and better in any way. Paul says man has been in a tailspin going ever downward since the Garden of Eden. And listen to verse 21. See if this sounds familiar to you, speaking of the culture. For even though they knew God, he was written on their heart. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. Listen to this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. A fool is defined as the Bible as someone who does not give adherence or does not fear the Lord. And friends, I love our country. We honored our country last week. But I think if there's anything that marks the overall trajectory of our country, it's that most people no longer fear the Lord. And they're going their own way. And they're making decisions based on the dictates of their hearts or the whims of the world. Solomon is calling God's people and saying, don't do that. You're to be different. James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. The beginning point of wisdom, if you're a young parent here and you want to put your children on the right path or you're a grandparent in investing in your life or, or you want to make better decisions in your own life, the book of Proverbs is for you. But it has to start with Humility. You have to recognize that you need his wisdom. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And if you'll come to him in humility and say, Lord, use the book of Proverbs to help my children and my grandchildren and me to make better and more God-honoring decisions, he would delight to answer that prayer. And friends, I'm speaking to our church now as those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who have been brought near who are no longer called strangers or aliens, but friends and sons and daughters of the Most High. We need to teach each other over and over and over and over what sort of thinking and behavior and speech pleases our Lord and then form those habits of life that most glorify Him. We must fear hurting God. And this is the purpose of the book of Proverbs. 
May the Lord give us grace as we study it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And specifically, I thank you for the wisdom literature. Very specifically, thank you for the book of Proverbs that are a collection of wise sayings. Proverbs are not promises, Lord. They're general truths that if we will apply, you promise to bless us. Father, I know I speak for every member of this church. We don't want to do anything or say anything or think anything that brings shame on Jesus or the gospel. So, Father, through these Proverbs, as we read them and meditate upon them and study them together, Lord, may we renew our commitment to live practically righteous lives, not just saying we're going to heaven, but we separate from sin through sanctification. Father, that we do and say those things which would most honor you. Father, I thank you that you haven't left us alone in the world and you're not silent. You give us explicit instructions. You give us the indwelling spirit, Lord, to lead us to all truth. And Lord, through your spirit, guide us through this study this summer so that on the other side of it, as individuals and as a church family, we'll be fitter instruments for your name. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.